Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Peter Spiegel. Did you see the video of the rescue of six dogs from their flooded enclosure in Leland, North Carolina? With fast rising waters, you see rescuer Ryan Nichols wading in water almost up to his waist as he approaches the six medium to large dogs trapped in a fenced in shed. The dogs are standing on their hind legs and barking and howling, and Nichols unlocks the gate and frees them, and then we see the dogs swimming and then walking to higher ground into safety. We are told that the waters were rising so quickly that they would have drowned very soon if they had not been freed. So thank you, Ryan, and to journalist Marcus DePaola for taking the video and posting it. So it's a lucky break for these dogs, but isn't it maddening to know their owner left them there to fend for themselves? Well, that's just one story. I'm sure there are many more. But we wanted to learn more about how the hurricane and its flooding affected companion animals with someone who's been on the ground and whose organization is deeply involved in disaster response activities. I'm pleased to welcome Robert Misseri. He is president of Guardians of Rescue. They are a New York-based animal welfare organization that has been uh, busy helping following Hurricane Florence with all the flooding down there. Welcome, Robert. Peter, thank you. Thank you for having me on. Describe to me uh, what is happening now. It's a little bit after the hurricane came through and we're dealing with all that flooding. What's going on down there? As of right now, we're very happy to see uh, most of the water has started to recede. Um, so there's only water left in a few places. Um, one of the biggest challenges was the water stayed, uh, which made it very hard for rescues to get to people with their pets. Um, a lot of a lot of people had, you know, were forced out uh, by evacuation, um, and uh, because they did not adhere to the warnings they you know of course and they stayed with their pets but then when the water started going over roofs in certain areas they had to get evacuated out and a lot of those pets were left behind fortunately we were able to get um uh, a lot out um you'll never know how many uh perished but right now the uh Rescue efforts have gone down to relief efforts where a lot of the cats and trees are starting to come down um, because of the uh, no more water on the ground and uh, your wildlife is starting to come out and stuff that, that had survived. Yeah. And uh, we're out there with, with food, with water right at this point, um, with vet techs, uh, treating many of them that have injuries. And that's, that's where we're at as of right now. Your organization is based in Long Island, New York. Uh, what resources do you have at your disposal to offer help uh, in emergencies so far away? Unfortunately, this particular uh, storm uh, took a lot by surprise. You know, we wish we had able bodies and boats to get out real early. Um, and uh, although we did, uh, many of the people were not qualified to go into rapids and what have you. So that was challenging. But what we do bring uh, is uh, passionate volunteers who bring in supplies, uh, medical equipment, veterinarians, vet techs, uh, transport vehicles, and of course, equipment and food. Um, that's one of the biggest things that we've been providing. Um, and they're getting it out into the field. Uh, there's a lot of small uh, one or two rescue groups that you know just come out and they need supplies. They're going to go out in the field. They're going to do their thing. They get the, they come they get to us and we pack their trucks up. We get them the food. We get them the care they need. The crates that they need. Um, because of so many supporters of ours have have donated stuff that 
arrived in these areas, we were able to distribute them. Um, and we're, we're very, really thankful for that. Why don't we take a step uh, back and speak more generally? What sort of advice do you have for pet owners, dog and cat owners uh, in emergency preparation? And also, uh, what sort of mistakes do you see commonly uh, made? You know, uh, the biggest mistake we see um, is not leaving when when they really ask you to leave. And I know nobody wants to leave their home. Nobody wants to leave their pet behind. But um, I think this is a good example of so many that were left behind um, at the last minute. So these people did stay, and then they had to be, many have had to be air vacked out and so forth and so on, and they couldn't take their pets with them. Um, and they'll regret that uh, the rest of their lives. So the first thing is when you get an evacuation notice, get out, get in your car, take your pets, go someplace safe, uh, call it a vacation, whatever, just get out of there. Uh, but if, 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 and I say this because many people won't leave, have, have extra crates ready, have carries for your cats, uh, build something that is as high as possible in your home, um, whether it's built on top of a kitchen table, so forth and so on, where your cats can climb. Um, and that's, that's, you know, that's severe. That's something, but that's when we see that, that's when we know that the animal made it. Oftentimes when someone had made shift something that their animals can go on top of, couch, couches on top of couches, those are the animals that survived. Um, absolutely mark your house if you can, that there are animals inside, and be diligent. You know, when you when you leave there, try to reach the uh, rescue groups that are on the ground and ask them for assistance. Um, if it's safe to go in, get them in there. Uh, but preparing, you know, you can't prepare when these things happen. You have to be prepared prior. Um, and the key is having, you know, a plan, a real plan. And, you know, uh, Carriers and crates, a lot of these people don't have carriers and crates, so they can't take their animals out. Um, a lot of people can be evacuated potentially with their animal if they had a carrier and they don't have carriers. Mm. So that's the number one thing that I would recommend to most everybody. Yeah. From our perspective here in Southern California, we were watching the news and we knew this storm was brewing and we knew pretty much where it was going to hit. And it seems to me that we had a lot of time to plan for this. And yet you told me it sort of took people by surprise. What, what am I not getting here? What people thought was, yes, we're going to get flooded out. We're going to have a lot of water. Um, I'll deal with it. I'll, 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 you know, work this out like we worked out the other floods. Uh, and, 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 in their defense, I guess they survived those previous floods. This time, the water was over their homes. And when that started happening, people said, okay, I'm in trouble. I should have left. What yeah. do I do now? Yeah. And these are people who many of them had pets, and they had to be air backed out. Um, you know, the National Guard and so forth and other agencies had to get them out. But again, they were not able to take their pets in most circumstances. And that, again, will forever weigh heavy on their hearts. Um, we rescued a couple of dogs, three dogs out of a home that were deemed dead. Um, they said they checked the house, um, and uh, the, the dogs were, were not visible. Um, but we got there, and we did get to find the dogs. Uh, we found a house with nine cats in it that, again, um, everyone assumed the cats were dead. But they were able to get just on top of the kitchen cabinets, the very, very top, 
Um, and the first day when the water came in, the water was absolutely um, about three quarters way up the house. Okay. So that's what gave them the ability to survive, and they did survive. Um, but, you know, at the last minute, you don't have time, and you're not going to be able to shuffle your pets around. And there is no one else there to help you except first responders, and at that point, it's just too late. Robert, I'm wondering if you can give us a little taste of some of the other activities uh, your organization is uh, up to. I know you are interested in uh, preventing and investigating animal cruelty and abuse. Can you tell us a little about that? So we have a uh, an investigation unit that works with um, agencies and other rescue groups around the country. Uh, we do the preliminary investigations, and then we turn our findings over to the authorities that we feel would best prosecute the case or investigate the case. Um, it is led by a uh, FBI director of investigations. It's, a, uh, it's an FBI agent by the name of Jack Garcia. And uh, he spent his entire career undercover. Um, he's very respected in the in the industry, and um, we lead some great investigators. Um, so if somebody's if somebody's uh, involved in dog fighting, and let's just say it's been known locally, it's a very small town, and everyone thinks it's no big deal, and they're afraid of them, and uh, maybe the authorities just feel it's not a big issue. We get called in. We prepare the case, uh, and then we turn it over to the authorities, and we, we, we make sure that something is done. Justice is served, um, and uh, we stay in the behind the scenes. Uh, but we've been involved with quite a few cases recently. We're very proud of, and um, our investigators are uh, fantastic. They really are. Okay, and Robert, you've got a doghouse program. What's that? Just way too many dogs that are illegally allowed to live outside, uh, and we do our part in trying to uh, get many of these owners to surrender them. But for those who don't, uh, we place a, a very unique dog house. It's well insulated. Um, it's it's it's, uh, uh, it's it's it can last in Alaska. Uh, we put electric heat pads in them, and we try to get these dogs off these chains. Uh, we install pens. Hmm. Um, and it's a program again. We're proud of. Uh, it's 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 primarily here in the Northeast. Um, it's really really cold, and we there's probably nothing worse than an animal having to suffer through these winters, these freezing temperatures on chains. Yeah. Um, so our goal is to get them into these very spacious, very thick insulated, heated dog houses. Uh, and when there's room in the yard, we get them into a pen, um, and we're very proud of it. Um, of course, the medical and everything else, we're involved in um, getting them uh, everything that's necessary, all, of course, at the expense of the organization, the owners support us. And um, it's something that uh, we're gearing up right now for. We're in the middle of building dog houses as we speak today. I'm sure listeners can find more on the website. What's the address of that website? It's guardiansofrescue.org. Robert Masiri, president of Guardians of Rescue, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. You're listening to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner, host of the show. 
Well, I'm proud to say we are now in our 10th year of weekly broadcasts, bringing you timely and critical animal news from all corners of the earth. Join us each week as we explore animal welfare and animal rights issues, as well as fun pet topics with fascinating guests and experts. And if you don't catch the show live on your local radio station, you can listen two other ways by going to the Animals Today website, that's animalstodayradio.com, or as a podcast on iTunes. It's so easy to subscribe on iTunes, and when you do, each week, usually on Sunday, a fresh show will download right onto your device. I'm Dr. Lori Kirstar, and thanks for listening. Welcome back to Animals Today. So do cats and dogs really fight like cats and dogs? This is from The Guardian. Research explored the relationships between cats and dogs living under the same roof, and they found that while cats might feel more nervous around dogs, they appear to have little trouble in asserting themselves. This was an online survey of 748 homeowners. 80% felt their pets were comfortable with one another, while only 3% declared that their cats and dogs could not stand one another. But cats were by far more antagonistic. No surprise there. Homeowners reported that cats were three times more likely to threaten their dog housemates than vice versa, and cats were 10 times more likely to injure them in a fight. More than a fifth of dogs reportedly picked up their toys to show them to cats, compared with only 6% of cats doing the same for dogs. Researchers at the University of Lincoln launched the study to find out what made for happy cat-dog relationships. They argue an amicable coexistence is important for welfare and could reduce the risk of pets ending up in a rehoming center. Here are some more numbers. While 57% of owners said their cats hissed, spat, and swatted at dogs, and 18% said their dogs threatened cats, less than 10% of cats and only 1% of dogs ever harmed the other animal. One of the researchers believed the reason may lie in domestication. Because dogs have been domesticated for longer and are more easily trained than cats, they may be better able to control their behavior. And cats might need more reassurance that they are safe under the same roof. She says it's easier for dogs to be happier around cats than for cats to be happy around dogs. And finally, the researchers found that the best predictor for a happy cat-dog relationship was the cat's age when the cat began living with the dog, implying the younger the cat, the better the chance the dog and cat will get along. Now, all that being said, I have to tell you from personal experience that sure, there's a great chance cats and dogs can coexist happily together, but you always have to be super cautious when introducing a new dog to your resident cat or a new cat to your resident dog. There are different ways and steps you can and should take when the introduction takes place, and these steps depend on which is the incoming animal and which is the resident animal. And of course, there are many resources available online to help you through this process, but you can't just assume that an individual cat will get along with an individual dog or vice versa. Even if the dog has had experience with cats and the cat has lived with dogs before, proceed 
cautiously during this introduction process by just placing a dog and cat together in the same space and hope that they're going to get along would be extremely irresponsible and could potentially result in a horrible outcome. So steps you need to take during this initial introductory period. And it might take a while and some effort on your part. So taking the proper precautions, which might include keeping your dog on a leash initially, making sure your cat has an escape route and a place to hide. Keep your dog and cat separated when you're not home until you're certain your cat will be safe. Again, many online sources to help you pave the way to a smooth integration of cats and dogs. Halloween is approaching, and what are some of the risks for your dogs and cats on this holiday? Well, some of this information is from the blog Pet FBI. Halloween treats with chocolate or the common sweetener xylitol. Well, most people know about the dangers of chocolate if consumed by your pet. And we've spoken many times on the show about xylitol, which is a poison to your pet. Products containing xylitol include many candies and gums and mints. These are Halloween items your pet can come across on the ground that he or she can easily snatch up and consume. And it's not just the mints, candies and gum and chocolates, but xylitol is found in so many other products your dogs and cats might find tasty. Peanut butter nut butters, dental products like toothpaste, mouthwash, just to name a few. So just be mindful of this. When trick-or-treaters come to your door, your dog or cat may panic and escape. Doors are opening and closing all the time. People in strange-looking costumes approaching. You can see this might be an easy time for a scared pet to escape. Best just to put your pet in a quiet, secure area somewhere inside the house. And you don't have to worry about the risk of your pet bolting out the front door. Or if you're like us and you don't want strangers coming to your house at all, another option might be just to turn off all your lights and pretend you're not home. It's easy for us to do that since our neighborhood doesn't have a lot of families and young kids and we're not a highly populated trick-or-treating area. Okay, what's next? Electrical decor and wires can invite chewing and turn deadly. Pets can also get tangled up, causing injury. I mean, this is common sense, right? So be mindful what and where wires are placed and keep your pets away from them. Wrappers, strings, and foil in your pet's tummy can cause illness or blockage. Did you know that emergency visits to veterinarians increase many-fold on the night of and day following Halloween? Poison ingestion, wrappers, toxic food ingestion, intestinal blockage, other tummy problems, electrical burns. Now, sadly, more than any other time of year, cats and dogs are targets of pranks and abuse. It's not just black cats. It's all pets. And it does happen. Pranks, abuse, stolen pets, very common on and around this holiday. You just don't want to imagine or believe the things that have been reported that evil people do to animals or pets on Halloween and any time of year for that matter. So again, my advice is to keep your pet at home, in your home, not in your backyard, in a safe, secure, calm place on Halloween. Now, even the most kid-friendly pet can be overwhelmed and scared, leading them to growl, snap, bite, bolt. So securing your pet is obviously important to prevent them from escaping and keeping them safe. And if your pet nips or bites or hurts a child or adult on Halloween, even if your pet is provoked, 
even if your animal's inside and the incident happens in your house, even if it's just an innocent jump by your pet on a person for love or attention or inadvertently knocks down a child or trips a person, I'm telling you in the eyes of the law, your animal and you will be at fault. And some more obvious reminders, make sure your pet has the proper identification, microchips, along with identification tags. I mean, do I really need to say this? Yeah, of course I need to say this. And I know it's cute to want to trick or treat with your pet or dress your pet up in an adorable costume. Just think about what you're doing and think for two seconds whether it's safe for your pet and if your pet is okay with this. I know it's fun to take a picture with your dog in a tarantula costume and post it on Facebook, but come on, if your pet is not so keen on wearing an outfit, is it really necessary to do this to satisfy you? So you think your pet likes to dress up as super dog, then just make sure the costume doesn't interfere with his vision or movement or going to the bathroom. Try it on a few times before Halloween, and if he struggles and shows distressed behavior, then go to plan B like no costume or a bandana, although our dogs would rip a bandana off their neck and destroy it within a couple seconds. Okay, there you go. Just use common sense because the most important thing this Halloween is to keep your family and your pets safe. For the past quarter century, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. Its programs include reducing income taxes by allowing a deduction for spay and neuter expenses, preventing animals adopted from shelters from reproducing, and requiring the mandatory identification of dogs and cats to prevent dumping the unwanted. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.org. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner, and you're listening to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm proud to say that we are now in our 10th year of continuous weekly broadcasts, bringing you animal welfare and animal rights news and stories from around the globe. Animals Today is brought to you by the Animal Welfare Organization, advancing the interests of animals. Please check them out at aianimals.org and consider making a donation to help support the show. That's aianimals.org. And thank you for your interest and your support. Animals Today listeners know we are very interested in alternatives to animal testing, always on the lookout for new technologies and for the people advancing this rapidly growing field. So I'm really excited to welcome Dr. Thomas Hartung, professor at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. He holds a chair in evidence-based toxicology, and he's director of the Center for Alternatives to Animal Testing in the Department of Environmental Health Sciences at the School of Public Health. Welcome, Dr. Hartung. Yes, hello. Pleasure to be here. To begin, can you please give us an overview of your work, especially the aspects concerning the replacement of animal models in biomedical research? Sure. Um, I started actually very early in this field. Um, Already my master's thesis and PhD thesis at the University of Konstanz in Germany uh, developed an alternative method for inflammation in the liver. And um, this brought me into the broader community of aiming for animal replacement. And over the last three decades, I've been taking up uh, several roles in this play. 
So I started off with developing then, after my PhD and MD, um, a pyrogen test. So this is a test where actually um, lots of rabbits are still used nowadays, about 400,000 rabbits per year, to find out whether there's microbial contaminations in, um, in these things which we are going to inject into patients. Hmm. And I developed this test 23 years ago. And uh, this year, it has been accepted by ISO. Last year, the International Standard Organization for Medical Devices. Last year, by the US Pharmacopeia. And uh, last year, it has also been made uh, the preferred test by the European Pharmacopeia. But you see, 23 years are a long period of time. Um, I then have become the head of the European Center for the Validation of Alternative Methods. And that is part of the European Commission. Uh, at the time, it was a 65-people institute to promote alternatives and validate them, so to show that they are actually doing a proper job. And with about 20 million budget, I was able for five and a half years to really make a big push towards new approaches in European legislation and with the agencies. Mm-hmm. But in 2009, I made a change and moved to the U.S., and took over in Johns Hopkins the Center for Alternative to Animal Testing. Uh, this center is um, the first and I would say uh, the premier information hub on alternative methods in the U.S. We are just celebrating our 37th anniversary. Uh, so CAT, as we call it, um, is a center which brings stakeholders together. But we're also doing research Research, for example, in developing human mini-brains to test on bees instead of rats and mice, or we're developing computational methodologies to predict properties by computer instead of uh, using the animal test. Okay, thanks for that overview. Can you uh, just get us up to speed on toxicology? Can you define toxicology and uh, how has it changed in the past 20 or 30 years since I I graduated medical school in 1991. It looks like the field has changed so rapidly. Uh, It is changing, it is changing. Though exactly in toxicology, change is overdue. Uh, You have to imagine um, toxicology deals with the safety of drugs and chemicals, and we would love to have a safer environment. We want to know that the things we are consuming, we are eating, uh, are safe to us. Um, However, it is the only field of science which is changing only very slowly. I just turned 55 years, and most of the animal tests which we are still using have been introduced when I was not yet born or in kindergarten. Hmm. Um, So this is really a very unique part of science. While normally we exchange very rapidly, in safety we are extremely conservative. Once we have introduced the test, we never get rid of it again. Uh, Toxicology is only using about 10% of all animals, but about 90% of the work for alternatives is done in this field. And this has to do with the fact that we have not a moving target, that these assays are around, and that you can really develop over 10, sometimes 20 years, an alternative until something is actually being replaced. So the way we got connected with you was when we reviewed a recent paper where you and your group looked at database analysis to uh, try to predict the toxicity of chemicals. Can you tell us about that technique and uh, how that is used? Yeah, this is really a game changer at the moment. Um, The computational power uh, is always increasing. And everybody will have heard about artificial intelligence now or machine learning. Um, The term of big data is around, 
Uh, what we have done already two years ago was to create really a big database. Um, so we created a database of 10,000 chemicals with 800,000 toxicological studies, mainly animal studies. This was at the time already the largest database in the world. But uh, we have expanded this in the meantime uh, to something which includes information on 10 million structures, uh, which means uh, you have 50 trillion pairs you can form where you compare two chemicals and their properties. And 300,000 of them have some type of data, chemical data, biological data. About 50,000 have animal data. And this is creating an incredible landscape of the chemical universe. This is exactly what we did. We created a map, a map where two chemicals are very close to each other if they are very similar in their structure, and where they're far away from each other if they don't share uh, uh, certain structural features. It took an Amazon cloud server, so a really supercomputer, two days to calculate this map. Hmm. But the interesting opportunity we now have is for any substance, whether it's one of the 10 million structures or something new, um, we can just place it in the map. We can ask, where is your similarity space? And we can then ask, with machine learning, artificial intelligence, to find out how this, what this landscape, the area where the chemical is placed, is telling us. Is this a skin sensitizer? Is this dangerous to the eye? Is it killing you acutely? Because we can ask, what are the surrounding neighbors? What properties do they have? Mm -hmm. Very controversial, very uh, contradictive, uh, then we will be very uncertain. But in many, many cases, we come to a very clear result, and we were actually correct in 87% of cases. This is for 190,000 chemicals and their toxic properties. So, really, a tremendous uh, effort here. Recently, we've been speaking about two chemicals that, that have been in the news. Glyphosate, the Roundup weed killer, and chlorpyrifos, the pesticide. Uh, what happens, or have you considered putting those into your database and seeing what it says? I mean, these are these are substances for which actually a lot of data do exist, um, and they are controversial for um, endpoints. Uh, in case of chlorpyrifos, it's mainly autism, developmental effects on, on, the, on the developing brain. Um, and for, uh, for glyphosate, it's the discussion about its ca possible carcinogenic properties. Uh, these are not properties which we are predicting at the moment. Um, so I cannot really make, say anything about this. And we would have ample data for um, the nine animal tests we are currently replacing with our methodology. I see. However, these tests, on skin, on eye, acute toxicities, they consume a lot of animals. 57% um, of the animals in toxicology are going into these nine tests we are using. But unfortunately, I cannot offer you any information on cancer, on damage to the embryo, and some other concerns uh, where we would need to come up with other type of methodologies. As I'm reviewing some of your material, a new term for me, the human toxome, appears. What's that mean? Well, this was um, um, a project which we uh, brought together after the National Academy of Sciences in uh, 2007 uh, came up with a very important report, which was Toxicity Testing for the 21st Century, a Vision and a Strategy, which was really calling to move away um, from animal tests. And the big thing was really that the 
National Academy of Science panel unanimously endorsed this and said, we have to move in this century away from animal testing for toxicology. And we, and this is calling in the end, replacing animal tests, which we use as a black box. You put a chemical in and you count dead animals, to say it very simple. Um, that we are moving to something which is about understanding how a chemical interferes with the organism. Is it the liver? What is the target? Why is the chemical doing harm? What is the cascade of events? We call this pathways of toxicity or adverse outcome pathways. And the idea of the human toxome was to start creating a catalog of these damaging ways of harming a cell. So, so there's 50 ways to leave your lover and there's a couple of hundred ways to kill a cell. I see. And the idea was if we have a catalog of this, like this, um, we can actually start developing a completely different framework. And I had the privilege of heading this for five years um, with some of the leading toxicologists who were part of the toxicology in the 21st century testing uh, paradigm. And we developed some tools, made them available for others so that, you can, that we can actually start cataloging uh, toxicity mechanisms. Professor, the field is so fascinating to me as a discipline. What sort of background do you, I presume you have graduate students and postdocs and lots of, uh, lots of highly educated people coming through. What's the typical background of someone who wants to get into this? Actually, we have a very broad variety of people working with us. Um, this, obviously, we are educating here in uh, Johns Hopkins in the School of Public Health. Um, we have PhD students. Um, I have had in my life, I think, some almost 60 PhD students who went through my laboratory, um, and many, many more master students and so. We also have uh, junior faculty working with us, but there's also sometimes uh, lawyers. There's people who come from an animal welfare background and are helping us in organizing our meetings, um, helping us in uh, getting communications out, because an important part is not just to do the next scientific paper, but let the people know what is available. Train them. Uh, get a dialogue of change that regulators understand there's different new things they should consider, that there's shortcomings in the things they are using at the moment. And um, as I say, it takes a village. So in our team, uh, there's really, uh, it is very interdisciplinary and uh, it involves and engages a lot of stakeholders and volunteers. Well, Dr. Thomas Hartung, thank you very much for giving us an introduction to this fascinating field and also for giving us reason to feel positive about advancing science while harming fewer animals. My pleasure. More with animals today after the break. to welcome with his new book, Mac Delaney. The book is titled Engineering for Cats, Better the Life of Your Pet with 10 Cat-Approved Projects. Hi, Mac. Hi, Peter. Thanks for having me. I'm really glad you're here. So you are an actual engineer, an aerospace engineer, and clearly a lover of cats, right? That's correct. Both. What is this book and why did you write it? Uh, so this book outlines uh, 10 different projects that you can build at home that will make uh, your life for you and your cat better. Uh, alongside each project is some information to explain why the cats might benefit from each project and also some 
uh, background engineering information on on what makes the projects work and just kind of as a conduit to discuss some engineering technical info. And uh, what made you really want to sit down and put this together? I can clearly see the joy coming through. What really motivated you to want to do this? Well, every single one of these projects was pretty much dictated by my own cats, uh, Pepe and Nelly, that would present different behavior problems. I think the first one that I tried to address with a project was my cat's incessant need to be uh, to drink from the fountain. And so I, bu- I built them a recirculating fountain so I wouldn't have to waste water. And uh, ever since then, I've just realized that you can, through some cat research, I learned different ways to make different projects that uh, the cats have really enjoyed and I've really enjoyed building. What other examples would you like to briefly tell us about? So one of the most beneficial ones that I've had is uh, basically just a set of shelves that you can put on the wall. So cats, behaviorally, at least mine, tend to benefit a lot from some vertical mobility to get a better vantage point of their uh, territory. And uh, this can be a little bit of a a tentative thing for some people, drilling into the wall, mounting something that's going to support the weight of, in my case, some reasonably chubby cats. In in the book, I kind of go through uh, how I I learned a little bit by trial and error, but drilling into your wall and uh, doing so without creating a lot of damage and also creating a comfortable perch for your cat is, is the point of this project. Well, I found your tips very reassuring because I am very afraid of ruining my drywall and creating a problem that I might not be able to repair. So I I particularly appreciate the tips. And also related to the cat shelf, you explore some of those engineering principles. What did you tell us there? So uh, as my job as an engineer, I kind of uh, analyze uh, the forces and structures and, and see how much stress they're under. And so this is kind of a interesting way to start seeing things once i started doing this more and more once you learn about how forces in a structure interact uh, you start seeing things differently and you start asking questions about buildings and uh, so it was just kind of a good opportunity to show how these concepts work with the project of the cat shelf and so i kind of do a little calculation to show uh, how the forces of the cat are resolved into the wall without without breaking and it leads you to make some recommendations about the design to be able to withstand not only the sitting cat, but the cat who jumps onto the shelf. Yeah, that's exactly right. So I think what a lot of people might be tempted to do is to go out and get just a bookshelf. You can get a pretty simple floating bookshelf that goes on the wall, and it'll, it might say that it can support uh, 20 pounds of books on it. But what I what the calculations kind of explain is why 20 pounds of books might not be nearly as uh, detrimental to a shelf as 20 pounds of cats as they kind of jump on and create higher forces. So one of the materials you uh, like is wood, which is not surprising. Uh, what other materials did you find yourself utilizing as you created these projects? Uh, so kind of a fun uh, material to just make some crafts and projects out of, I think, is PVC pipe. It's really cheap to work with. It's got slip joints, so you can basically put it together as if it's a, a kit of Legos or something like that. And there's there's a handful of projects like that, um, particularly the uh, the drinking fountains out of PVC pipe, but then some other things, just some structural things, like there's a set of cat bunk beds that you can make out of PVC pipe and some nylon webbing that my cats really enjoy to sleep in. 
I really look forward to making that one. I think that's the one I'm going to, well, maybe the second one I'm, I'm going to make. Uh, you do need to learn a couple of things like how to drill into PVC. It's not that hard to cut it, I understand. No, yeah. So the PVC projects are also kind of good because they don't make too much of a mess. A lot of these I actually made while I was still living in an apartment. So I made these just on the balcony of my apartment. So you can do it if you have limited uh, workshop space. And uh, all the projects in the book, they're a little kind of a step up from what you can do just uh, from a crafting perspective. You do need uh, some tools for them, but I give advice and uh, recommendations for how to use this. So if you're looking for a way to branch out and, and make some more technical projects, hopefully this is a good uh, introduction to that. Oh, it definitely is. The book certainly is a, a next step beyond uh, simple carpentry or crafting. It really looks really fun. Like I said, I'm looking forward to jumping into this. What other materials do, might you use if you kept on inventing? Um, do you see a role for exotic materials in cat habitats or cat projects? So I think for, for the book, what I was really focusing on is, is materials and things that you could get at any common hardware store so that uh, no matter where you are in the, in the country or the world, you've got these materials on hand. But yeah, you can definitely benefit once you start to learn some of the concepts through these, uh, I don't want to say basic, but introductory projects, you can take those skills and maybe branch out. Somebody sent me a picture last week, actually, of a cat tree that they made from an actual tree that fell down in their backyard. And uh, just processing that wood, and they turned it into something really beautiful, but uh, uh, definitely a more advanced project there. Mac, do you see any utility for 3D printing in cat projects? Oh, 3D printing, I think, is... uh, a tough one for size. I think uh, you can get really creative there, but fortunately, I think my my cats aren't too picky. I, I haven't gotten anything so advanced where we we really need a uh, a 3D printed more complex part. Yeah. You can. The the good news about if you have one of those simple maker bots, which are just super fun to play with, or if you have access to one, uh, what I've used those before is if uh, something breaks or if you're missing a part, rather than go back to the store. If you know what you need, you can just kind of print something out and uh, adapt it yourself. So that definitely can save you some time. Well, the book is unique. It's very clever. You are very funny, and uh, the authenticity really comes through. So congratulations, and I presume it's on sale everywhere, isn't it? Should be. If you, if you care, have a trouble finding it, you can go to engineeringforcats.com, and there's some links and information on how to find the book. Well, thanks for joining us on Animals Today. I appreciate it. Thank you. And this is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. We just have to give another shout out to our friends at Planet Dog, a company you probably are familiar with. They supply a wide range of toys, feeders, collars and leashes, and treats. They're made in the USA, and the toys are very durable, non-toxic, and just high quality all around. We've tried many of them, and I have to say our dogs just love the medium-sized ball called Soul. This is a rubbery orange-colored ball, one of their Orbi Tough Cosmos range products. 
There must be something special about how this ball feels in the mouth of a dog, because our testers just love playing with the sole, both in the water and in the yard. Once they get it, really, they don't want to give it back. In fact, we always keep two on hand, one for each dog so no one feels left out. These balls float, bounce, and last a long time. That's the sole ball from Planet Dog.